Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliet Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it. You better stop it. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Element. When we're talking to Element, I want to talk about how one of the things that it does is allows me to solve a problem. What we problem learned is that, Kelly? from some of our uber sports nutrition friends, like people who work in Tour de France. That you should drink some water. <laughs> well, there's that too. But that we should separate our nutrition from our hydration. And I think a lot of times we're all trying to drink everything down and like have like it's like a turkey meal, whole Thanksgiving meal in a bottle. And one of the things that we have discovered is that we take a little snack on our long rides. We actually eat a food, but then our water is really about hydration and electrolyte replacement. And we have been running Element exclusively in our bottles for a long time. A long time. And it is amazing how, A, how tasty it is, but how effective it is because I'm actually getting enough electrolytes. I'm a big human. I don't know if you know this stuff. And one of the things that happens is a lot of the- You're a little bit big. Oh, thank you. The- one pack of element in my bike bottle turns out to be sort of a perfect recipe for electrolyte supplementation and hydration and then separating out my nutrition. And I think that I just can't recommend that strategy enough unless, of course, you're going so hard you can't eat. Well, and for me, while I'm training, I really crave salt. And in fact, I have- You are so salty. I have trouble- getting down anything that tastes too sweet when I'm like doing sure. an intra-session situation. You, you I, want like a, yeah. like a sriracha, right. walnut, like Something like that, thing. but I don't care for really sweet bars or goos or any really sweet drinks while I'm training. And so that's another one of the reasons that I love Element in my bottle, especially while I'm mountain biking, because I actually, it tastes good to me and it, feels like what my body needs. It tastes good. And that is really the thing you know, when you're sort of redlining and it's hot out, it's got to taste good. It can't be gross and sweet. Element strikes the perfect balance of hitting all those things and allows you to separate your nutrition out. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Darren Kandow. Dr. Kandau is a professor and director of the Aging Muscle and Bone Health Laboratory in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina, Canada. The overall objectives of Dr. Kandau's internationally renowned research program are to develop effective lifestyle interventions involving nutrition, primarily creatine monohydrate, and physical activity, aka resistance training, which have practical and clinical relevance for improving musculoskeletal aging and reducing the risk of falls and fractures. Dr. Kandau has published 118 peer-refereed journal manuscripts, supervised over 20 MSc and PhD students, and received research funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, Canada Foundation for Innovation, the Saskatchewan Health Research Foundation, and the Nutritia Research Foundation. In addition, Dr. Kandau serves on the editorial review boards for the Journal of the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition, Nutrients, and Frontiers. Are you prepared to have your mind blown by this conversation? This is one of the coolest podcast episodes I think we've done in recent memory, mostly because you and I have been so interested in 
supplements generally and trying to figure out which ones actually work, but in right. creatine one in particular, one of the four that actually work and in creatine in particular. You know, I feel like I became creatine aware in high school, but really that was like the first time. And I felt like that was like a moonshot, but I remember in college first discovering creatine and realizing then that, man, it really allowed me to perform better. How we were using it, loading it, crazy now in retrospect, like gross with all the, basically had to drink it with like massive amounts uh. of fruit punch. But we found that it made a difference when we were racing full time and we were using it at that point. Here we are all these years later, we had no idea that it wasn't just about performance. It could be really about brain health, bone health, muscle health. It's amazing. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about this conversation is that Dr. Kandow debunks some of the commonly held myths about creatine supplementation, yeah. gives us some really good information about who should be taking it, how much, dosing information, when people should consider taking ba it. Basically, so let me just summarize it for everyone so you don't have to listen to it. Everyone. You should take creatine. <laughs> and if you have babies, you should figure out how to get your babies on creatine. Yeah. So this whole conversation is so filled with practical information and advice and all things creatine. And I think you all are really going to enjoy it. Hold on to your creatine butt. Dr. Kandow, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Let's go. We are very excited to talk to you. Absolutely. Can't wait. Let's go. <laughs> Set up for everyone where your current work-life balance is. Where are you talking to us from? Where are you headquartered? Yeah, I'm actually talking to you from uh, Invermere, British Columbia, which is the, the farthest Western uh, province in Canada. But I actually work at the University of Regina. That's in Saskatchewan, Canada, with three provinces over. So uh, a little bit of diverse in Western Canada. Western Canada. Okay, so we are going to dive in all things creatine today, as that is one of your areas of expertise. But before we do that, how does one become an expert on creatine? Can you give us just a little bit of the... Dr. Kandow backstory before we get into the details here. And let's be honest, I was born in the 70s, yeah. which means I came of age during EAS. Yep. I gave myself diabetes trying to load creatine <laughs> back in the day. Everyone who's over 40 yeah, will understand yeah. that. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I'm like, aren't I an expert in creatine? I mean, well, I have, you know. I think that's the other thing that's funny is I feel like it's this like new thing people have been talking about in our industry for the last five years. But Kelly and I, you know, we were both athletes in the 90s. Right. And we were, I mean, I've been kind of hit or miss taking it for a lot of time in my life, but we were taking it in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I, and then it kind of like went out of fashion. I haven't. I know what I know, but I am so excited to understand my blind spots yeah. and to change all of the things that I think yeah. I've gotten wrong. So anyway, we don't even know what question was in there, but I'm sure how, there's something how did to you, respond to. How did you stumble into this <laughs> hotbed topic? Yeah, I got insanely lucky. So this is interesting when you brought up fashion. So creatine was discovered in the late 1800s, right, by mistake. And then you never heard anything until Linford Christie won the gold medal in 96, I believe, in Atlanta. And they asked him what he was taking for training. And he said creatine supplementation. And then if you go look at the research in the late 1990s, two landmark researchers who are the, the most popular from in the world, Roger Harris and Eric Holtman, simply did a study where they took about 20 grams a day of creatine, which is very typical for the athlete to load. And it really maximized the amount in the muscle. And Dr. Holtman even showed that three grams a day was just as effective. It just took about a month. A little bit later on and that's probably where a lot of our dosing strategies come from mm. but i did my master's degree with dr phil chillebeck who phil's not on social media a lot but he's probably or actually easily one of the best clinical researchers in the world and he actually was the first author on our big postmenopausal study 
And I was doing amino acid uh, research and we uh, were interested in glutamine. And I hate to sort of quash everybody's interest on glutamine, but it's probably, in my opinion, the most worthless supplement that a healthy individual can take because it's the most abundant non-essential amino acids. You can dump it all in and unless you have sepsis or cancer, it won't do anything. And so we showed it didn't do anything for someone healthy. And right about that time, creatine was getting a lot of momentum. And uh, I worked with Dr. Darren Burke and Phil Chilibeck, and they got, uh, Darren got a lot of uh, industry funding from MuscleTech at the time, which is now currently owned by Iovate. And we did a lot of uh, creatine research uh, with muscle biopsies and vegetarians. And my career was by chance. I was around two phenomenal individuals at the right time. And shockingly, I've been doing this for over two decades. And <laughs> when in a lull, we got very lazy. We just simply said, take it, take it, take it. And then I said, wait a minute, people are getting bigger, stronger, faster. Are you trying to tell me that someone can take three grams a day and they weigh 300 pounds and they're going to get the same result as a hundred pound individual? So we have seven studies currently planned and there's a lot more. So something that's sort of complacent is sort of taken on its new life. So. so I have heard that creatine might be the most studied supplement on earth. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, it's probably neck and neck with caffeine, but I will say creatine, in my opinion, is the safest, most effective dietary supplement on the planet. High dose caffeine can cause some adverse effects. And there's over <laughs> there's over 1,300 peer refereed publications now on creatine. So it probably is number one. Yeah. So I'd like to just back up yeah. a second. Are you going to tell them the story about your caffeine? Yeah. No. <laughs> No one needs to know that. <laughs> Ended in diarrhea. That's fine. Yeah. What I want to know is, will you explain to those folks who've heard what creatine is, their children, I'm thinking of all of the parents who said, hey, my son wants to take creatine, my daughter, should my daughter take creatine? Could you tell us what creatine is, why it's useful in the body? Wow. Just give people a little background in history. I remember all my, my physiology, but I'm trying to repress yeah. it. So just lay the table for everyone so that we can yeah. have the next conversation. Yeah, creatine is a very simple compound that we naturally produce in reactions in the kidney and liver. It's very similar to a protein molecule. It's just made up of three amino acids we get through our diet. And those amino acids are arginine, glycine, and methionine. So plant-based proteins or animal-based primarily. But it's also synthesized and made in the brain, which is sort of an emerging area. And we simply create this product to provide energy to all our cells in the body. And this compound, about 95% is stored in our muscles, and the remaining 5% is stored in our bone and brain. And we simply use it to help maintain our energy currency of the cell called adenosine triphosphate. And so if you have more of this energy currency, the theory is someone can exercise in the weight room or on the track a little bit longer, faster, and that could lead to greater adaptations. You just hinted at some of the effects. Mm -hmm. I know we'll get into it, but it seems like what we're starting to understand is maybe it's not just about more powerful mm -hmm. muscles. In fact, for someone who's over 50 now or almost there, I mean, Juliet's over 50. <laughs> that's a point. Yeah. The question is, what are the other uses in the body? And if I'm not interested in power mm -hmm. development yeah. for a last rep of a max squat or a 100 meter sprint, yeah. Does it still benefit me taking it? Yeah, there's an, it's a whole body supplement now. It used to be isolated, as you just mentioned, to power or athletes. But anybody looking to improve muscle mass, that's massive implications for glucose disposal for someone with type 2 diabetes. The more muscle you have, mm -hmm. the more glucose can be disposed. And muscle is hugely important for people susceptible to sarcopenia or age-related diseases. Uh, we're now actually coming out with a paper showing that creatine actually has a small beneficial effect on fat loss 
for a lot of misconceptions, people thought creatine because of increased water retention, but we're actually now showing a small decrease in fat mass. So that could have implications for obesity. From the neck up, we're now seeing huge implications for post-concussion syndrome. Individuals' muscular dystrophy has huge implications maybe for sleep deprivation. And from a bone health perspective, any females primarily susceptible to osteoporosis, we're actually seeing an increase in bone geometry. So I always say there's not a person on the planet, and if you can include the fetus with that, that's included, that would not benefit from creatine. And we know this because people who are born with creatine synthesis efficiencies where they can't create it, they get huge beneficial effects from speech pathology to cognitive affection. And so I really struggle to find anybody on the planet that can't benefit from creatine. And again, it is the safest. And we can talk about that long-term study we looked at a little bit later on, because I think that's a hesitation for a lot of uh, parents sure. and children are like, yeah. geez, you know, is it safe? And I'm like, well, you're naturally producing it. Why wouldn't it be safe if you take it at a recommended dose? Yeah. I know you have a real question, but I'm just wondering how I get it into my fetus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there um, like yeah, a yeah. like fetal supplements or the next level? The next thing. Okay. Okay. So can we play a little game here? Yeah. And I'm going to hit you with some commonly talked about on the internet yeah. myths or facts about creatine. And then maybe you can say if it's a myth or a fact, and then maybe you could go through each and talk a little bit more about the why behind okay. it. So this is my game. Does creatine cause weight gain? It can, yes. Does creatine cause hair loss? No, I'm a bad example, but there's no evidence <laughs> to suggest it does. Well, Kelly's right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> does creatine cause GI issues? It can at the loading phase. So that's why we typically don't do that. We can talk about why that is. Yeah. Okay. And then the only other one I've heard of on the internet is that creatine dehydrates your muscles. Complete opposite. It super hydrates the muscle. So it will decrease muscle cramps, especially for those athletes exercising in hot environments such as July and August. It super hydrates the muscle. So it's that's complete opposite. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. a total myth. Okay. So let's go back to the weight gain because if I'm not mistaken, sure. the weight gain caused by creatine is from that water retention. Yeah. And so could you talk a little Reten bit more about is that? Is retention even the right word? Is that yeah. even the right word? And then is it really just that people don't, it could have all these other beneficial mm -hmm. effects, but because people focus on the plus two pounds on the scale yeah. and feel very bothered. Hold on, by I don't that. even know if it's two pounds. I mean, what is it? Plus five pounds. I'm just throwing that yeah, out there. So, so I mean, tell us a little bit about this whole weight gain yeah. thing and the concern around it. Yeah, so creatine is osmotic. That means it drags water from your blood into the muscle primarily. So it kind of adds on overall mass within the first week. Now, the issue that I think a lot of reviewers, especially young females, are so underrepresented in creatine research, and it's very tough to get them to stay in a study when you do the creatine loading phase, because on average, you can increase body mass from about one to three kilograms, depending on the genetics of the person. So what we do is we do a different dosing protocol, but yes, it does cause intracellular water retention and it can cause net body water accumulation. So people say they feel very bloated or they've increased body mass on the scale in the first week. That tells me you're a responder to creatine. That actually is a good thing if you just have a little bit of patience. That water retention will subside after a little bit of while. But we can talk about great strategies, especially for females, if you don't want that rapid weight gain. We've done many things in our lab to show that we can get the same beneficial effects, but having hardly any weight gain over time. So that is... Okay, so two, oh, no, no, hang on a oh, second. Oh, because So many questions, we're dying. <laughs> you are saying that that could be a potentially net negative to step on the scale and be heavier. I think of, oh, I don't know, half the population that would step on the scale and be like, dude, I'm up three pounds. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm up two, three kilos. I think, 
Okay, go ahead. Anyway, okay, okay. I'm just saying that that is not necessarily not negative, yeah. Jay. Okay, so tell me the what does it mean to be a creatine responder? How would someone know if they are? Mm-hmm. And then two, for women listening to this who might be worried about the weight gain or anyone who might be worried about the weight gain, what would be the dosing protocol that you would recommend to get someone up to an appropriate dose that they could keep taking forever? Those are excellent questions. So the number one thing that determines everybody's individual response of the creatine is the amount you already have in your muscles. So in theory, a vegan who gets no creatine from their diet will respond the best. An individual eating a little bit of red meat or seafood, which are the food products that have the highest amount of creatine, will respond in the middle. But someone on a carnivore diet will probably not respond hardly at all from an additional muscle perspective. We don't know if that's the same from a brain perspective. And more times than not, that's how we uh, determine responsiveness. There's other things that can influence it, such as sex, the age of the individual, but diet or, sorry, uh, individual amounts in the muscles seem to be the number one factor. So again, as a vegetarian or an individual who's emphasizing a plant-based diet, they should expect some really great gains from a creatine perspective. But for those who say, I don't want the water retention, I want to take creatine for the clinical and health aspects. I say many, there's many strategies you can do, but if you're looking at it from a muscle activities of daily living perspective, you can take three grams a day, not 20 grams, three grams a day, and it'll probably saturate your muscles in about 30 days. Now, another cool strategy is that you can divide up the three grams, individual one gram dosages, breakfast, lunch, dinner. You will not get any water retention whatsoever. And like a teaspoon is about five grams. Is that right? Five grams. So you can divide it up. Now, we use, yeah. we use something very novel in our lab because we use it based on the size of the individual. So we use 0.1 gram per kilogram. So if you're 70 kilograms, you're taking seven grams a day. If you're 100 kilograms, you get 10 grams a day. The theory there is that the larger you are, you have more of these transporters that allow creatine into the cell. So that kind of makes sense. It's no different than having a small coffee versus a large coffee for a linebacker versus a child. It's going to be relatively the same. My child's have titrated up to a large (laughs) coffee already. That's right. And we've shown these, uh, this dosage is very safe and effective. And also you can break it up. So a really cool thing with creatine is you don't always have to take it as a bolus. You can divide it up into smaller, more frequent dosages throughout the day. I like to put about five grams in my breakfast. I drink five grams during my workout. We've also shown that's a novel way. And now since there's new research suggesting I take at least 10 grams a day, if not more, I'll take a little bit more later on in the day. We'll talk about the timing, if you can mix it with coffee, things like that. But those are all things that I think the viewers would be very interested in. Yeah. You hinted at some of the effects of, I can work a little bit harder in training. And theoretically, that allows me to handle higher work volume. That sort of is magical. I can get more work done. That means I can have a better adaptation response theoretically. You also mentioned some hydration benefits that if it's really hot, then maybe I can prevent some of this really deep dehydration, hypohydration. What other ways might someone feel if they were taking this at an appropriate level? And what other kind of benefits might I see? Because sometimes, would I expect to Mm -hmm. feel something right away? And the reason I mentioned this is I want people to understand that 
like all whole food supplements based things, we're trying to augment what the human physiology does. Yeah. We're not like, this is not a shortcut towards better function, but what might someone experience and how is it being used clinically? You hinted at some of these other things, but can you expand besides just that power idea or work idea? Yeah, I think a lot of people take creatine for the promotion, the enhancement in strength and power and all that and muscle mass. But just as clear evidence is suggesting, think of the word recovery. We're now seeing an accelerated rate of post-exercise recovery. It wow. really strengthens the immune system. And we're seeing really good evidence post-long endurance exercise, such as triathlon. Certain proteins that are elevated go down. And that seems to increase the preservation of muscle tissue and potentially what they call an anti-catabolic effect. So two lines of thought, it improves your ability to do more work or training volume, but we're actually seeing now an improvement in recovery, allowing that athlete Amazing. to exercise maybe twice a day, almost on a daily basis. And they don't have, they're not susceptible to the overtraining syndrome. So the elite athlete can exercise more frequent, longer, and it doesn't interfere with training frequency or programming. So not only is it potentially an anabolic or promotion uh, product, but we're starting to really see the recovery aspect come into play now. So it really seems to be this overall product that can be considered. So before we get too far down a different path, can you talk about the hair loss myth yeah. and the possible GI issues that I know some people do experience? And then we can move on from the myths yeah. and facts. So the, this myth comes from a hormone DHT that's a precursor from testosterone that's been linked to hair follicle loss. And it was done, the only study that's ever done is in rugby players, and they gave 20 grams a day for seven days, so the typical loading phase. Uh, they did an elegant design where they had a the group of these young individuals do a crossover. So they got placebo for seven days, and they also got creatine. And when they measured simply this hormone, it did go up when they were on creatine, but it was in the normal physiological range. So if you next time you go to your doctor and they measure blood and urine, they're going to measure your cholesterol, and they're going to say, hey, it's a little bit elevated, but you're still within a normal range. Uh, so that's exactly what happened. And for the viewers, please note, just because a hormone goes up, if it doesn't translate into an actual phenotypical change, so for example, just because DHT, which is a precursor for hair loss, went up, they never measured hair follicle cross-sectional area or loss. And so you can conclude, or there's no evidence to suggest it causes baldness. And I always like to finish that question I get all the time off. I've assessed over a thousand individuals, males and females, not a single one has come to me and said, my hair is thinning and we've given 10 grams a day for two straight years. And I think if someone's hair started to fall out, that's the first thing they would come and say to me. So the baldness <laughs> is genetic, creatine, there's no evidence to suggest it does. And so it is a myth as it stands right now. Oh, and then the GI tract. The other big thing here yes. is with 20... We only see the GI tract issues with high, high dosages. And the theory- What's a high dosage? It probably over 10 grams a day. So usually we only hear about this during the loading phase. That's 20 grams a day for the first seven days. Uh, and some of the causes of GI tract irritation, where it is osmotic, it pulls water from the blood, depending on your habitual diet, some people may not be taking in enough water or it can cause some GI tract irritation there. To get rid of any of those issues, just take smaller, more frequent dosages. Hold up. You're saying I'm supposed to drink water every day? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, Kelly just started drinking water last week. So That's he's, he's feeling pretty fine. Yeah. Okay. So I'm hoping to be able to ask this question in a way that it can be clipped out for the internet so that Kelly and I can just point people to this video. 
is creatine safe to be given to kids and teenagers? And do you recommend they take it? A hundred percent. So there's great researchers in the United States that have looked at all the studies that have looked at in children, and it is safe. And you can look at the dosages. You can base it up body weight or a small dose. And the theory here is we got cautious because not a lot of research was in happening. And so I say, well, geez, if you're a little cautious of creatine, you must be cautious of giving your, your children a hamburger or chicken sandwich or a glass of milk because that's a protein. We naturally create that in the body. So since creatine is naturally produced, I struggle to say, why couldn't a child take it? Why can't your grandfather take it? I just don't see any evidence to say why not. And all the reviews suggest that it is very effective. It's really been shown to be effective in post-concussion syndrome in children. And the safety profile is excellent. Now, here's where the bit of caution comes into play. There's been no research in children to look at blood biomarkers of what creatine is doing, such as liver and kidney enzymes. But from a health perspective, there's no evidence to suggest it causes any adverse effects. I want to circle back for a second to talk about Mm post-concussive phenomenon. Right now, we are in what I feel like is either anecdotally Mm -hmm. or are experientially a high watermark of concussions where either kids are bigger and faster or they're less prepared or there's some aspect, but we seem to be much more aware of at least or testing. And we're seeing a lot more concussions. We definitely, I was concussed as a kid, not identified, never pulled to the side, eyes cross-eyed. That wasn't great, but we're starting to identify now. So even if it was just a misrepresentation, we're starting to be aware that man, kids are getting concussions a lot more. And it really feels like we're still in the dark ages of helping families come up with interventions. I mean, it was in the last year and a half where people were like, oh, there are lymph nodes in your neck and head. And we can actually decongest the brain the same way we decongest the knee just through muscle contraction alone. So it feels like we're just starting to realize that there's a lot we can do. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the fat or how this works or if this is help us understand why that might make the case for that? Because it seems like a really safe really powerful intervention, even if it's the belief effects of, hey, here's something we know can support the organism, I'll take that. And then just before you answer that question, this was actually also not just for kids, but adults as well. This was a question submitted in my Instagram post from my dear friend and many time mountain bike world champion, Rebecca Rush, who suffered a really bad concussion from a mountain biking accident. So she also wanted to get your take on the role of creatine in concussion recovery. So if you could cover both those things. So just like the research in children, it's in its infancy, but nothing is saying there's any detrimental effects from the neck up. And we have a huge paper coming out in a prestigious journal soon looking at all the data. So this is where it gets very interesting. The brain is very unique. It makes creatine. The muscle doesn't. So that's why the brain is so unique that it's very resistant. And we can talk about dosing a little bit later. But right now, all three of our brains are making creatine. It's very resistant to what's coming in. So it kind of has like this blood-brain barrier that's specific. But when you look at all these conditions, concussion, Parkinson's, Huntington's, any type of myopathies, we start to see a really common denominator that their brain creatine content is significantly reduced. So this is interesting. If you suffer a concussion, it drastically decreases the amount of creatine in the brain. And just like our muscle, our brain uses creatine for energy and healthy tissue. So sleep deprivation is probably one of the most popular things from a worldwide perspective. And when the brain is stressed, 
from a memory, sleep deprivation, hypoxia, concussion, creatine has promised to improve not only creatine content in the brain, but some of the recovery perspectives. So I love your analogy with concussion. The two studies that have been done, ironically, have been in children. Not in NFL, pro athletes, things like that. They were in children. When the child suffered head trauma, they were immediately put on creatine for up to three to four months at a pretty high dose, 0.4 grams per kilogram. And when they looked at all the post-recovery measures, cognition, speech, self-care, they were substantially improved for the children on creatine versus placebo. So these two studies showed promise. A child, when the brain is still developing, can recover quicker in the presence of creatine compared to children who didn't. So the thought was, how are we going to ever do a study in the NFL or NCAA? Because the only way to legitimately do it is when they get a concussion, immediately put them on creatine. One of the big issues, as I just mentioned, is the brain is very resilient. By the time creatine gets into the brain, it might be too late. So the other thought is, why don't we just put all the athletes in the NCAA on creatine now, measure them at baseline, and God forbid, hope they get a concussion, at least we could do it that way. So at the end of the day, it's in its infancy. We need to have randomized control trials. But again, I'm not seeing any data to suggest it's not favorable to be on creatine from a brain health perspective. Okay, that is really fascinating. I have to go back to this kid thing again one more time. Sure. You've said very clearly that it's safe and that there's no reason why kids and teenagers shouldn't or couldn't be taking it. And could you just list out like what would be the benefits Mm -hmm. for kids or teenagers taking it? Let me take a swing at this first. Kids don't eat food. They yeah, yeah, process but I mean, food starting, right? Right, yeah. right. But yeah, how can it help kids and teenagers? Because I think, you know, yeah. if I think of the parents in my neighborhood, they'd be like, okay, great. Well, this guy's saying it's safe. That's fine. But yeah. why should they take it? What would be the reason that it would improve their athletic performance or their academic performance right. or you name it? And how way, would it help them? That's Dr. Guy. Dr. Guy. <laughs> so from a, like, again, for clarity, from a physiological perspective, we're not seeing any reasons why a child would not benefit and performance goes up and uh, we need to do a lot more blood biomarkers to see the long-term health effects if they're doing it at safe dosages. But as a child is developing, they're into, all their systems are developing brain health, muscle, skeletal, bone health. So creatine is highly involved in all those energy systems. Mm. So if you just focus on muscle, bone, and brain, if a young female has greater bone a curl as they're getting older and when they hit puberty, they may offset osteoporosis. When an individual is getting healthier, stronger muscles, that might keep them more active. Could that decrease childhood obesity and some of the adverse effects we're having now to keep them running longer, less fatigue? And from a brain health perspective, children are very prone to sleep deprivation, screen time. Can that have some effects? So the effects on a child would be no different than an adult. And I think we're very hesitant with giving a supplement to a child. But I would say, great just emphasize maybe more salmon or more poultry or or red meat if you can. Now, if they're a vegetarian, that's going to be a little bit different. But I can can totally understand the caution from parents, especially because creatine almost seems to be too good to be true. And that's why we need to have a lot more data in children, especially. And it's an area that we're starting to see. And a good colleague of mine, we're presenting at the American College of Sports Medicine Conference in a couple of weeks in Denver. And his whole talk is on the safety and efficacy of creatine in children. And all his review papers, which I can send out if anybody wants those, it clearly shows it's effective. We need to do a lot more work, but we're not seeing any reason why a child can't. 
Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentous. And for obvious reasons, we're going to be talking today about how much we like Momentous creatine. couple things. One is that Momentous creatine is third-party validated. So you're going to get it and it's not contaminated and you're not going to send off any drug positive drug tests to WADA because I know who you're out, out there. Second is that the creatine that Momentus uses is the Crea Pure, which is the, is the brand or the style of creatine that Dr. Kandau talks about in his study. Research, yeah. And that, that's the kind that he uses. We have been using creatine in our family for a long time, we were stoked to have these big bags of creatine from Momentus lying around. I put it in the girls' emergency. I mix it into their shakes. I started adding another scoop. So I'm getting about 10 grams. I've been doing 10 grams for a while now, maybe a year. And I suddenly am like, maybe I need to take more. Well, one of the things we learned too from Dr. Kandau is that anyone who takes creatine only needs to take creatine monohydrate, nothing else. That's right. And that's exactly what the Momentous brand is, is just creatine monohydrate, nothing else in it, five milligrams. If you're a little gun shy about the whole supplement world, and I think it's reasonable to be so because some of them have different effects, right? He talks about the few supplements that are actually validated and turns out creatine is one of the handful of things. And it is the most studied supplement on earth. Also very inexpensive, relatively inexpensive to add this in to your diet. We're now thinking less about performance and we're starting to think about how do I keep myself intact as I age? Creatine is part of that solution. Go get yourself some creatine at livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Do you feel better now that I've been spiking our kids' food for yeah, years? Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about dosing yeah. because I think you mentioned this 0.1 gram per kilogram yeah. is pretty universally good for people. And then obviously this higher amount yeah. if someone is post-concussion. Yeah. But yeah, how much should people be taking? Does it vary by age, yeah. by activity level? Let us know more about dose. So right now there's three common strategies. So whoever's listening can fall into one of these strategies. Let's take the loading phase. It's the most popular. This would be for people who need a really quick fix, world championship coming up, powerlifting event. This is the typical 20 grams a day for seven days. If you take 20 grams of creatine, maybe four uh, times a day, five grams each for seven days, that'll fully saturate your muscle and that will provide a numerous uh, benefits from a muscle performance perspective. For those who say, I financially can't afford that much creatine, I don't want to risk water retention. I'm taking it every day for the health aspects. Uh, from a muscle perspective, you can take three grams a day, every day till the day you die. That's been shown to replenish what we are naturally excreting when we go to the bathroom. And the dose we use is in between 0.1 gram per kilogram. That's on average about seven to 10 grams a day. It's very effective. I will say in the, the paper that we just came out, the, the longest term study ever, we gave 0.14 grams in older females because they go through something called anabolic resistance. After the age of 50, males and females have a blunted response, not only to protein, exercise, but we think creatine. And that's why we gave them a little bit higher. Across the entire board, there's no adverse effects on the kidney, liver, cardiovascular system. So again, you can choose whichever you like. I think if you're doing the loading phase, you can easily drop it down to three grams a day from a muscle perspective thereafter. I should point out though, 
If you're looking at it from a bone health perspective, there's never been a single study showing any bone benefits less than eight grams a day. And the brain okay, so is over 20. <laughs> the brain's over 20. Okay. So you've mentioned a few times this postmenopausal study, yeah. which I took a particular interest in since I'm 100 years old yeah. now and definitely a lot older than Kelly. But I would love to hear about the study and what you learned and what the takeaways are for normal people. Yeah, we did a, a few preliminary studies in advance and we came across bone health by mistake, actually, when we were looking at muscle. But this is the longest term study ever to look at exercise and creatine supplementation in an adequately powered study. So we had over 200 postmenopausal females. They had to have their less menstrual cycle for 24 months uh, post or after the study. So everybody was falling into that. They did three days a week of supervised weight training and six days a week of walking. So a very common strategy, which we're trying to promote to get over 150 minutes of physical activity in per week. Again, so one sex, postmenopausal females, over 100 individuals in each group, and we gave them 0.14 gram per day. So keep in mind, that was over 10 grams of creatine a day for two straight years. They took it on their off days every day. There was no increase in bone mineral density around the hip, which was a bit surprising because our previous study showed it did have some favorable effects. But what it did show is it increased bone strength. So I don't know if you can see this. If I take my pen and try to break your bone, the individuals on creatine was more bendable. That means they probably will have less fracture later on in life. And the fracture of the hip and the upper leg is one of the biggest causes of hip replacement surgery, not only in Canada, but I'm sure in the United States as well. But it increased bone strength. It increased bone width. So it might be able to withstand those falls that you might occur in icy roads or around the house. It improved walking speed. So it allows these individuals to move faster. And then it also increased lean tissue mass. And as I mentioned earlier, lean tissue mass is a surrogate for blood glucose disposal, which could decrease the incident of type 2 diabetes. So you add in all these good things. And then when we looked at two years of kidney, liver, blood cell count, creatine at that high dosage caused no greater adverse effects than placebo. So at the end of the day, I think an individual postmenopause or even before should consider exercise first, and maybe creatine is going to be the sprinkling on the cake to just make it taste a little bit better. Please note, we did not have a non-exercise group. We don't think creatine is going to do anything from a bone health perspective unless those individuals exercise. So the biggest take-home is you need to exercise. Weight training is really favorable. Walking is extremely beneficial from an overall health, and creatine will just potentially give you a small greater effect. And greater effect in terms of bone health and muscle mass, if I could just reduce it to like third grade language. And walking speed for mobility, yes. Yeah, and by the way, thank you for helping us be evangelists for walking because we're obsessed with walking okay. and talk about it all the time. So thank you for being on that train. Yes. Do you feel you hinted at that vegans mm -hmm. can struggle to get enough creatine? Mm -hmm. Is dietary protein intake a consideration. If I am hitting, say, 0.7 to 1 grams, do you feel like, I mean, you talked about sort of the effect that there's no potentially no negative downside, yeah. but I'm just wondering because we have plenty of vegetarian and vegan friends mm -hmm. and we're trying to come up with better solutions for them. Now we have these incredible vegetarian proteins that allows them to supplement their diet. We're looking at some of these other things that they can put in, we, essential aminos that they can take to supplement. 
am I hearing that if I, for whatever reason, am a vegetarian or choose to be vegan and, and an athlete or a person, that I might really benefit from creatine supplementation? Uh, easily the best people on the planet. So for example, ironically, most commercial creatine is vegan-based, but it's only primarily found in red meat and seafood. So depending on the individual on a plant-based diet, vegetarian, or pure vegan, they're not getting any dietary creatine. They are only synthesizing from these plant-based proteins mm. probably half the amount of an omnivore, someone who eats you know, all different food groups. So when we've done these studies in 2003 with muscle biopsies, and when you take a vegetarian or vegan and put them on a, a normal dose of creatine supplementation, they double the amount of creatine in the muscle, and that basically just think of that doubling the amount of work the muscle can do. They can do more repetitions. Wow. They can do more hit training, spin classes, run faster. They can recover better. And male or female, that can really improve body composition. And that's independent of the neck up. The cool thing with the brain, and this is interesting, is that it's not the same with muscle when it comes to diet. So let's a little bit of clarity. Your skeletal muscle or skeletal muscle, if you're a vegetarian, has half the amount of creatine in general, is it compared to someone on an omnivore or high meat diet? But that's not the same in the brain. The vegan brain or the omnivore brain seems to have the same level of brain creatine content. So that's why we mm -hmm. think you need a lot higher dosage for brain health compared to muscle. So, in, in so summary, if you know a vegetarian or a vegan or uh, someone on a plant-based diet, and they say, hey, do you think it'd be a good idea to take creatine supplementation? And first you say, why? You're like, well, I want to improve overall health. I heard it's potentially good for muscle, bone health, and brain. Absolutely. They should respond really, really well. That's great. So tell me what creatine cycling is. Is it a thing? Yeah. And do we need to cycle do creatine? Do we need to do it or think about yeah, it? Yeah, you know, over the thousands and thousands of studies, no studies ever actually determined this. So there's no evidence to suggest you need to cycle it. And I think our study we just talked about giving creatine for two years clearly shows you do That's not. That's a pretty big macro cycle. Yeah. It's almost an Olympic cycle. Yeah. <laughs> but for the viewers who want to, maybe financially, they're traveling, they don't want to take the powder across a border, whichever it is, it stays elevated in your muscles for about 30 days and it stays elevated in your brain for about 90 days. So I think if you're taking creatine for maybe four to six weeks and you say you injured yourself or whatever it is, and you just say, I want to take some time off, keep in mind the elevated amounts in the tissues can stay from anywhere from a month wow. to about three months. Oh, that's so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about this whole thing about types of creatine. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I actually only know about creatine monohydrate, mm -hmm. but I know there are other kinds. So what are they? And I'm pretty sure your recommendation is to not take any of those and focus on creatine monohydrate. But could you talk a little bit about this whole type of creatine thing? I think there's a lot of marketing behind some other types. Yeah, it's because creatine got boring. Creatine mono, when we say creatine, we mean, uh, uh, we talk about monohydrate. And the simple being is when you take creatine monohydrate, meaning creatine linked to one water molecule, when it goes through your GI tract and diffuses from your small intestine, it's identical to what the liver's producing. So that's why creatine monohydrate works. It's identical to what's released from our liver, identical to what's synthesized in the brain. So our muscles say, hey, we know you, we can let you in really quickly. And then it got boring. Creatine monohydrate is, you know, we gotta come up with some flashy things. And then all of a sudden people say, well, what about creatine hydrochloride, creatine citrate, creatine pyruvate? At the end of the day, and this is really critical for your viewers especially, it's only going to work if it's creatine, and it might be linked to pyruvate or an ester bond, 
But when it goes through the GI tract, it has to raise your blood creatine levels. And we're actually seeing a lot of these marketing gimmicks do not raise your blood creatine levels. And if it doesn't, it's complete quackery. And my argument is why spend way more money on these fancy designers when monohydrate has been tried and tested and it's the only one that works. We use Creapure, 100% creatine monohydrate in our clinical trials. But I just think, hey, it's been around for so long. We got to change it up. People got to be susceptible to marketing. <laughs> but my creatine goes to 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my creatine goes to 11. Have you found that there are things to take with creatine? Mm -hmm. When people do ask us about supplementation, we're always like whole foods first, period. Let's get a blood panel and see if you have genetics that, you know, could benefit from other supplementation. Yeah. You know, I feel like creatine is almost one of those food-like things where we're just like, hey, I don't really need to understand because it's so inexpensive. Yeah. It really is relatively inexpensive and so safe. But have you found, you know, turmeric and black pepper where it turns out to be great bedfellows? Is there something that makes creatine more effective in the system, eating with food, having, yeah, I mean, like, we used to- mean like collagen and vitamin C. Yeah, that, we, that we used connection. to bolus the crap out of creatine yeah. with massive amounts of sugar. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't help anyone, yeah. obviously. Or like if you put it in your coffee, does it kill the creatine? Yeah, yeah. You know, give us all those scenarios about how to take it. Kill it in career. <laughs> so this is really cool. One of the best ways to get creatine into the tissues you want is prior exercise. So this is an interesting thing with the timing of creatine. If you simply move and increase blood flow, creatine will get accelerated into your tissue. So exercise is my first go-to. If you want to get greater amounts mm. of creatine in the body, exercise. Secondly, carbohydrate has been shown numerous times through insulin to cause a greater increase in creatine uptake. But the dose is so high nowadays with the toxicity of sugar, most people say, I don't want to be taking any of these additive sugars. Well, the good news is you can take a protein source and the majority of protein is glycemic. So 18 of the amino acids in a protein primarily can cause an insulin spike. Whey protein is very popular. If you combine creatine with whey protein, we showed it really increased more so than protein alone. Um, so carbohydrate and protein seem to be some of the greater stimuli, if you will. There's other growth factors, but exercise is first diet a second. But hey, if you just want to take creatine and water, it will still get into the muscles over time. It accumulates. Unlike caffeine, where it sort of peaks really quickly, those are the two areas that seem to be the effectiveness. I would always emphasize uh, protein way more than simple uh, refined carbohydrates. But if you want to put in your yogurt or in a meal, that's going to be an advantageous effect as well. There are 10 million bros out yeah. there who are so grateful that you are like, what? I put it in my shake yeah. after exercise. It's, it's all fine. So that leads me to want Confirmation to know. Confirmation bias. Yeah. Thank you. How much do you take yeah. and when do you take it? And then what do you put it in? Yeah. So in the morning, I typically have Greek yogurt, whey protein and berries. So I'll put a teaspoon in there. That's five grams. During, I have two Pelotons in my house. So if I'm doing a HIIT workout or weight lifting, I actually put five grams in my water, just like a water bottle. And we've shown is the only study to ever show this. You can drink a small amount, very similar to people drinking branch chain after a set. That's a very viable way to increase strength. And then later on in the day, if I'm sleep deprived, very stressed, I'll take another five. So I get at least 10 grams, if not more times of metabolic stress, uh, writing grants, uh, boring papers, things like that. I uh, will take about 15 grams a day, but 10 on average, pretty much as long as I can remember. The timing does not matter. 
You can take it at any time of the day. However, if you can't take it in close proximity to exercise, either before, during, or after, that's a really cool area to recharge and refuel the body as well. And now your question with coffee, this is a big one. If you were to just do a single dose of caffeine and coffee one time or two days, it may not impose one another, but we're seeing really excellent cellular data out of Europe. And we did a study for where they did caffeine powder and creatine together. They did oppose one another. So my personal Mm -hmm. recommendation based off cellular data, take your caffeine before you work out and creatine after. And that's a great talk, yes, everyone. Yes, We're just going to lace that last thank, sentence. Thank you for... Um, that's hugely you, important. Because that's exactly what I do. So everybody likes hearing what they're doing is the right thing. Yeah, pre-workouts have a whole bunch of stuff in there. You don't know what's causing yeah. it, okay? Let me ask you this. Who would benefit what we're going to get is every edge case in the comments of all time. Yeah. What I, you know, I only have one kidney. Yeah. I took this and I had elevated creatinine in my blood and my doctor said, stop taking yeah. creatine. Can you talk about some of those, those yeah, edge the cases? outliers, like who yeah. really shouldn't be taking yeah, so it? Anybody Are there with a, those people? Anybody with a pre-existing medical condition, kidney, dialysis, a heart condition, they always need to get medical advice. But I'm a fake doctor, and I'm going to put on a real doctor's head here. So if you take creatine, when it gets into the muscle, we all have it diffusing from the muscle in this thing that we're all scared of called creatinine. When you go to your doctor, you have to tell them you're on creatine supplementation because it's nonsensical that your creatinine levels are not elevated. And we use this thing called the estimated uh, glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, and people say, oh my God, your EGFR is really, really low. And it has to be because you're on creatine supplementation. It's an estimate. So for those going to to see their doctor, and I just had to correct an Instagram post for about 20 females who were getting very worried. I said, that makes sense. You're taking creatine. It's going to elevate creatinine. Therefore, there's more things in the blood. It's like mixing Kool-Aid. The more sugar you get into it, it gets darker and darker and darker. It's going to cause the filter to be or filtration to be a little bit lower. And we know it's not causing any harm because when they come off creatine, the kidney goes back to normal. If it was diseased, the kidney would still be impaired. So it's just filtering more things in the blood. It's no different than alcohol. Alcohol is going to dehydrate the blood. The blood pressure is going to go up. So just, it's a common analogy. So don't get too scared when your creatinine levels go up. That is a very common thing with creatine supplementation. So we have a ton of questions that were submitted in advance by people on Instagram, which we're excited to get to. But before we do that, There has been some talk of, and I know it is extremely preliminary, of possibly a benefit to people who are taking SSRIs Mm -hmm. and also taking creatine. And I will preface this by saying I am aware that if anything, maybe it's promising, but could you just sort of tell us where we are with the data on that particular issue slash question and what about that are they researching? Do you mean it from like a depressive standpoint or... yeah? Are you even aware of that, you know, is this... Is this a thing? Are researchers looking at this to see whether it creatine increases the effectiveness of SSRIs? We've heard that somewhere. Not really. We're more uh, looking at some of the data, looking at creatine and depressive symptoms. But those individuals have been on medication. We haven't looked at creatine by itself. So to look at any hormonal regulations or other even, God, we can even talk about estrogen receptors. If there is uh, data, it's probably in its infancy. So that's something that we're not, can't really comment on. In a sense, there's not a lot of data on that. Okay. If someone is taking creatine and I 
say this because for all of the athletes that we work with who are blood tested, we want to make sure that they're on NSF, like safe sport, informed sport, tested supplements. For, for the average person, should they be taking supplements that are third-party validated, in your opinion? Well, I have to say 100% yes. We only use third-party tested uh, from an independent lab in our clinical trials. And when you go to buy, because again, I love your idea with food first, because you can get creatine naturally through red meat or seafood. Now, again, that limits some populations and uh, ethical use of animals and whichever. But please note, it should be, there's many different companies now True Safe, a certified sport, but they should be third party tested. And I always like to encourage people choose a product that has one ingredient. If you go and get Joe Blow's Mega Mass 9000 and they have 16 <laughs> ingredients in it, you don't really know what's happening. So if people say, What creatine product should I go and get? I said, I can only tell you creatine monohydrate. And when you flip around the label, it should say creatine monohydrate. If you got 15 different things like beetroot juice and some of these growth factors, we don't know the safety of it. So again, that's something to be really aware of and do a little bit of research before you go to the vitamin shops and GNCs. You know, they look very flashy. Do you really need this explode product that's going to cause an NFL player to maybe run a bit faster? What if you just want it from a health perspective? Again, you can get a lot of things through food. I would say 99% of supplements are useless. There's only a handful that are effective and the IOC says five. Amazing. Well, I don't want to go off from this topic, but what are those five just for my own curiosity? Yeah, so caffeine, creatine, beta alanine, sodium bicarbonate, beetroot juice. And of course, we always put protein in there from a recovery, but from an enhancement perspective, there's five. There's a few others that have some evidence, but the five big ones are pretty standard. Yeah. And I just want to go on record as saying, I appreciate you telling and saving everyone from having to go on Weight Gainer 900. <laughs> we were the same person. When I said, took as in when, high school, yeah. Weight Gainer 900, and I managed to pack on 10 pounds on my unsuspecting was, father. I thought it was Weight Gainer 9,000. No, that's just what we said. Yeah, so we laughed. That's why we both laughed because we've been laughing about Kelly's Weight Gainer 900 for 10 years, 20 years. It's true, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this, I've got a couple questions. Yeah. If we could come in hot with some questions from the people. These first two questions, I think, are sort of related we because they relate to hydration. Yeah, we hit a lot of these already. But this person wants to know if they're mixing it with an electrolyte. Mm-hmm. Does it disrupt hydration in some way? And then someone wants to know if your daily water intake should change if you're taking creatine. Yeah, so it's totally fine to mix with electrolytes. And if anything, I would recommend to drink a bit more water because it does pull water from the plasma or the bloodstream into the surrounding cells. And especially in hotter environments, try to increase a little bit more water as well. Okay. I like this one. Is it safe to take creatine while breastfeeding or pregnant? Yeah. So I've talked to Stacey Ellery, who's probably the world's leading researcher on creatine and pregnancy umbrella. And we've recently talked about this. So creatine can get degraded to creatinine, as we all know, in breast milk as well. So we're not 100% sure. And of course, this is the area for safety becomes unprecedented where medical intervention and communities should be there as well. So we don't know if it gets translated. A lot more data has to be there, but you definitely want to take precautions here. It definitely is shown to have promise for improving fetal development, decreasing inborn deficiencies with the child, and the, the mother can actually benefit from an energy status there as well. So just 
and I'm total tongue in cheek here, but you're saying it's much better for me to load it in my baby's milk <laughs> than to give it to the mother and have it pass through the breast. Is that right? I'm, I'm just kidding. Do not answer yeah, that. I'm not even- <laughs> okay. Does creatine cause sleep disturbances or insomnia, even if taken early in the day? Yeah, you know, we don't have any research to support that, but that's a very common myth. And my only thought is the individual may be exercising at a higher intensity. They could be slightly dehydrated. They might be taking more caffeine. So directly, there's no evidence to suggest it does or or it doesn't. Sometimes I hear it improves their sleep. Sometimes I hear they feel some disruptions, but there's no evidence to suggest why that would be. Yeah. Okay. Since creatine has anti-catabolic properties, is it a good idea to increase intake on a calorie deficit? A hundred percent. Yes. This is a big one. Just like protein, if you're having a reduced calorie diet, you want to maintain energy uh, status and creatine can't help maintain frequency there as well. Absolutely. That actually has really interesting implications for surgery and post-surgery and people trying to maintain lean muscle mass. I really appreciate that. So we also got a question about should cyclists be taking creatine? And I know that endurance athletes in particular would maybe be a population that might be concerned in particular about the water retention feature. So is there any different recommendation of any kind related to endurance specific athletes like cyclists? We just published a huge review on creatine and endurance just two weeks ago and, and it came out and the answer is yes, it has massive implications. Now there's a little bit of caveat. If your sport is very sensitive to weight gain, you may want not want to take the loading phase, but you can take the smaller dosages. That three grams. Exactly. Or even a little bit. So three grams all the way up to about five or six or even more, however you want to do it. It definitely helps with uh, hydration. And it really has been shown in those studies, we talked about the anti-inflammatory effects. It was in post-marathon and triathlon, it decreased the inflammation response. So if you know someone saying, hey, I got a 40K marathon coming up, taking creatine before for weeks before the race will help increase the recovery afterwards and accelerate recovery there. So it can be very advantageous. I actually take thyroid medication, so I'm going to ask this one. Is there any concern in taking creatine when on thyroid medication? We don't know the interaction or bioavailability of affecting T3 or T4, or if you're taking a thyroid stimulating hormone. If anything, creatine may increase overall metabolism, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that it interferes with any of those medications. Okay, so this one's kind of special, but someone is getting their annual DEXA scan Mm -hmm. in July to assess their muscle mass. Do you recommend that this person stop taking creatine before their DEXA scan, especially given that this person hasn't been taking it prior to their previous DEXA scans? So how should someone manage this as, as sort of testing themselves around yeah. DEXA scans? Yeah, so that she, he or she should have a little bit of caution to go when they get their DEXA scan because it's only measuring lean mass. That takes in consideration blood, organs, and all that. It's not measuring muscle mass. So hydration can't overestimate the amount of lean mass you have if you're dehydrated the other way. So again, if they're just getting it once, they can choose however they want to do it. But I'm assuming they want to get a DEXA now and then down the road, they should follow the same procedures. Uh, They need to avoid their bladder, make sure their hydration is coming in. So yes, we have specific protocols before coming to the DEXA scan, but you always want to measure pre-post. Getting it once is just going to give you numbers and you're like, well, what does that mean? I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> we we work with a company called Momentus that uses Creapure. Again, we talked about making sure that supplements are third-party yes. validated. We've had a couple of questions that talk people talking about gas mm-hmm. and creatine. <laughs> is that 
common? Is that more common with a certain kind of creatine? If I'm on a vegan or vegetarian based, is that in your experience? And what might someone try to alleviate that? Yeah, it's not a common effect. It is more common when they're on a really high protein diet. So when you start to take creatine, most people say, hey, I'm getting a gram per pound or, or you know, 2.2 grams per kilogram. Just say that's 200 grams of protein. So obviously protein is nitrogenous. It can create a lot of gas or bloating. But when they're on a lower protein, we don't see that. So it's very rare, but I have heard that. And my only analogy is probably based on the protein amount or methane gas from different protein sources that they're doing it. Interesting. What if someone wants to know if they miss a day of their creatine supplementation, do they just keep going on the next day as normal? I'm assuming yes. Yes, 100%. Yep. And if they've been taking it for more than 30 days, again, remember, you got that month before it comes back to baseline. You can miss a day. You can miss a week. You don't have the freak out. Again, that's the luxury of this. And I think if they eat uh, seafood or meat, maybe for supper, you know, just choose that. And that could be your source of creatine. There's about two to three grams of creatine in a salmon uh, fillet. Herring and mackerel is very high. Or if you eat red meat, uh, you're going to get about three to five grams per steak. So it's very- I feel like you do not know my family. We're not eating mackerel. Yeah. So uh, it's power for the girls. Okay. So you have blown our minds, made the case. I feel like put a lot of uncertainty to bed. Mm Where are you most interested in where your current research is going? And what's your sort of current hypotheses around usage or special test cases, edge cases of use for creatine? Yeah, we're really interested on individuals that are diagnosed with sarcopenia. So the age-related loss in strength and functionality. And we want to take a population who are in long-term care facilities, retirement facilities, who may not have access to fitness centers and look at home-based exercise with creatine, and God forbid another pandemic comes, we can actually provide evidence to people to stay at their home. And then individuals with osteoporosis, cancer, and frailty. So more of a clinical population, we start to see some really good beneficial effects there. And then the big one is the neck up. We're really starting to get interested in depression, anxiety, cognition, self-esteem for a lot of individuals. Post-exercise is interesting. When you're really fatigued in the fourth quarter, Can creatine help maintain clarity to make that pass or allow you to still exercise or go to work? And then sleep deprivation is a big one, not only for students, but I think everybody worldwide. I think everybody is sleep deprived and you can't do anything without a good night's sleep. No supplement. Doesn't matter how much coffee you're going to take. If you're getting three or four hours a night of sleep, eventually it's going to catch up to you. And, And we think since sleep deprivation reduces creatine content in the brain and causes an impaired cognition effect, can that have some effect? So we've sort of got away from athletes and we're now looking at a lot of clinical populations. So uh, that brings up a couple of questions for me. I guess I have heard of people being diagnosed with sarcopenia, but I think of sarcopenia as like a thing that's happening to everybody and that wouldn't we all be dying? Well, I mean, but you know what I mean? Like that, that it's this thing where every, it's sort of understood that, you know, at 40, 50, and then especially starting at 60, there's, everybody's experiencing some kind of sarcopenia. So if someone is diagnosed with sarcopenia, do they have like an extreme amount of muscle loss above what would be normal? Is that what differentiates that? Yes. So the definition of sarcopenia is completely flipped. We used to think muscle mass was number one, then strength and functionality, like climbing stairs and carrying groceries. Now strength is number one, functionality is probably two, and maybe muscle mass is three because there's good evidence to suggest that it doesn't matter how much muscle you have, you can be stronger or weaker. So the diagnosis of sarcopenia is very clinical. 
you come into a lab and you're diagnosed with a, a lot of things. So yes, we're losing muscle mass, we lose strength, and we lose functionality later on in life. Those are the three big categories. And if you're diagnosed with sarcopenia, that's very detrimental. But if you maintain exercise your whole life, aerobic or weight training, you may never develop severe or even heightened levels of sarcopenia until the day you die. So I can't stress enough, lifelong physical activity is the key. And I think it's the fountain of youth. Yes. So you probably know, we just published a book called Built to Move. Mm -hmm. So we're obviously obsessed with movement. It seems like almost all these studies have been done with creatine plus some Mm -hmm. kind of movement and that there seems to be a hypothesis in advance that those two things, you know, need to go together, which I understand. Is there research being done on just using creatine in like a couch potato population? Like, can it have benefits for people who don't now or ever are never going to really move their bodies enough? Can it be beneficial in those populations? Yeah, we're, uh, it's an excellent question. So yes, 99% of the studies have some type of exercise modality, and that seems to unlock the magic of creatine. But there's been a few studies in older populations and in clinical populations, just giving creatine without exercise as improved measures of strength and functionality. And in young boys with muscular dystrophy, it really had beneficial effects on functionality and even on bone health. We're looking at a mobilization. What about those older adults placed in long-term care facilities that are unable to move? Uh, Could that have some ability to offset the decrease in muscle loss? And the reason we say that is we did a study in young, healthy individuals who volunteered to put a plaster cast on their arm. And when they took creatine, they reduced the rate of muscle loss. So that has huge implications for athletes that have suffered some type of fracture. So, And the other big area is the brain health seems to be a bit independent of exercise. We actually seen some improvements in cognition, con- post-concussion syndrome without exercise. So yes, the vast majority says you need an exercise component, but we are starting to see some beneficial effects without exercise. Is it too soon to start an Instagram fan account for creatine? I feel like you we should sure? put your face. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I don't, I, I really, uh, it, it is so. Like fans of creatine? Yeah, I'm so grateful for Forrest in high school who was like, bro, You've got to start getting on creatine right now. I was, I think I was yeah. 16 when the first yeah. time I became creatine and, aware. And the big and thing so- is too, like, you know, everybody, all of us researchers have conflict of interest with, but all what we're talking about today has been in peer referee journals, which go through a rigorous process of science. It's not my opinion. Right. I'm giving you all the data that's out there, freely accessible for anybody to research. So a lot of uh, things that are coming out on the market have never been researched or shown to be safe. And I think the biggest thing is, Don't put something in your body unless you're confident that the majority of research, if not all, says it's safe. And then is it effective for what you're trying to do? And I use the analogy, creatine is just the sprinkle or the cherry on top of the cake. The cake is exercise. You can take every supplement until you want, but you have to move. And I think if the population moved, all our chronic diseases would go down quite substantially. And I think that's something we've got to get going. Yes, Netflix and Prime, they're all fascinating, but... I really say, you know, you got to try to move about 20 minutes a day. Just do it and, and you're going to live longer free of disease. I think that's a huge thing. Can you just say that built to move. all again? Yeah, yeah, you I'm really, uh, could you just say we're all built to oh, move? Dr. <laughs> Darren Kenna, <laughs> Dr. Kenna, where might people follow your research? Are you on the socials? Yeah, Can we follow along? Well, I know you're on Instagram. Yeah. So as new research is coming out, are you posting about it there? Because I feel like that's where most people are going to find it. Yeah, we, it's funny. And where else? It's funny. Um, you know, in academia, we'll publish a journal. We put it in the, the medical diagnosis and no one reads it. And then all of a sudden Instagram came out or Twitter and it's, geez, well, why not just start posting it there? So 
my handle is I post all our research on Instagram primarily. Academia and more nerdy stuff is on Twitter, but Instagram is probably the best. And it's just at Dr. Darren Kando. I try to put little videos and different podcasts and things like that just to get awareness out to people. And I'm more than happy to answer a lot of questions. So yeah, this is fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Kando. This was so awesome and informative. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.